How you doing? Doing good, everybody okay? Good. You look great. Hey, um, it's great to see more people coming back. There's more people feeling more comfortable to come back uh, to be with us, so it's great. Our 930 service, uh, a lot of folks uh, joined us there that hadn't been here yet. So if it's your first time, welcome back. We're glad you're here. Our first time checking us out online, we're glad you're here. So um, <laughs> that didn't sound very sincere, did it? Yeah. Well, we really are. Yeah. Okay. Um, how many of you ever played the game Simon Says? Remember that game? Uh, so in, in case you haven't, the three people who have not, um, it, was, it was a game. So you had a leader. The leader was Simon. And if Simon says, jump on one leg, you're supposed to jump on one leg until Simon says, stop. As long as Simon says it, you do it, right? If the person said, hey, jump on one leg, but didn't say Simon says, and you jumped on one leg, then you're out, right? So you go to there's the last person left. So you wanted to be Simon because you had great power over the lives of other people, right? So it was all about control. So if you're a control freak kid, you love Simon says. Well, this morning we're going to look at a character that encountered the explosion of the New Testament church. And his response is a little bit different than some of the other responses we've been reading about in Acts chapter 8. But it's important and it's really vital for us today to listen to what he says. So this morning we're talking about what Simon says because it has great impact on us today who follow Jesus, right? So we're going to look at that story this morning. But before we get there, I just want to remind you where we started last week. We started a sermon series called The Church Deployed. And that's our understanding that we have, this pandemic has caused us to scatter out into our neighborhoods, our homes, playgrounds, backyards, wherever it is, to do church there. Life groups have been very important for us during this time. People watching online at their houses along with their life group, it's been really cool to see how our life groups have managed this whole experience. And so we talked about that last week, that the, book, the church in Acts started, Pentecost came, Holy Spirit came down, the disciples spoke in other languages. They didn't know before studying Rosetta Stone, and so people became Christians. 3,000 people were saved that one day. And so the church, the New Testament church, the reorganized transition church really started at that time period. And so everything was cool. Everybody was hanging out in Jerusalem. People had come for Pentecost and they stayed because the Holy Spirit came and people got saved. So they just kind of hung out until Stephen, one of the leaders of the church, was arrested for blasphemy and then he was stoned to death. The apostle Paul, at that time Saul, who became Paul later, was standing there holding the coats of those who threw the stones to kill Stephen. So he affirmed what they were doing. And so because of that, Paul started going from house to house and pulling out Christians and throwing them in prison. So that caused a great panic in the church among the Christians. That's a small, you know, 3,000 plus, but they began to go back to their hometowns, their home villages, they began to spread out. And then when we left off last week, we saw where Philip went to the area of Samaria and he encountered Simon the sorcerer. So that's where we're going to pick up today in our story because we, we were challenged last week about this idea of the church deployed. And that's what we've, we've always been deployed, but somehow in maybe our context, we've forgotten that fact. Somehow, maybe there are those that believe that everything that happens in church happens here on Sunday morning in this building. We've forgotten, though we say it, we've forgotten that we are the church. The Bible says very clearly that once you give your life to Christ, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Our job is to carry out the Great Commission, every one of our jobs. 
Not just the ministers, not just the trustees, not deacons, not life group leaders. It is everyone who calls on the name of Christ. You have been sanctioned to be a missionary. And your first mission field is your street. And as Sam mentioned, we talked about, imagine your house as the church on your street. And you have a responsibility to make sure that everyone that lives around you has had an opportunity to hear, know, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so through this pandemic, we've been doing that. It's been really cool to hear the stories of how we have been the church deployed. And so we're going to look at this morning, this story of Simon the sorcerer. And the, the first thing that we realize is that Philip has gone to Samaria. Now, you've got to understand the context between Samaritans and Jews. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. There was great prejudice against one another. In fact, Jews considered Samaritans as half-breeds, not even full-fledged people. And so for Philip to go to the, to the area of Samaria to share the gospel, that was the first time since the church began, and it was new, that the gospel had gone to people other than Jews. And there was a mindset of Judaism, even before Christianity, that God was only for the Jews. They were God's chosen people. And so there was this idea that, well, God is just for us. He is not for any other nation. And so God is about to blow that up through this experience with Philip in Samaria. And so this is where he meets Simon the sorcerer. Okay, so this was before Gandalf. This was before Harry Potter. This was before the Wizards of Waverly Place. This was before Uncle Arthur from Bewitched. Did I cover all generations here? You got to go, you know what I'm talking about? All right, all right, thank you. I worked hard on that one. And so this is where we encounter this guy. Here it is in Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible, look at verse 9. Acts chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Beginning in verse 9. Luke, the author of Acts, Dr. Luke writes these words. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was some, someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So here's this Simon character, and he is using black magic. He's using sleight of hand. He's using smoke and mirrors to trick the people to show these demonstrations of his power. And he's so successful, he is so good at it, that they say this man must have the power of God. He must be a God. Only a God could do the kind of things he's doing. And he accepted that title. <laughs> he thought he was pretty great himself. And then suddenly this Philip guy shows up, Philip the evangelist, and things begin to change. People begin to hear another message and see other demonstrations. Now, Simon, he is working out of the realm of darkness. His magic is what we would refer to maybe as black magic. It is, it is evil. It is of darkness. It is for his purpose of self-gratification and controlling other people. He is using it for the wrong purposes. And then Philip comes in, and he is preaching a different message about this Jesus Christ. He's preaching the good news. He also performs great signs and miracles. 
But these are different. And Simon recognizes this guy is not sleight of hand. He's not using smoke and mirrors. He's not trying to trick people. He's actually demonstrating signs and miracles. This new guy is in town. He has a different power. And so Simon is intrigued by this. And so he sees the crowd of people believe the message and are baptized, and he becomes one of those. He proclaims that he believes in the gospel, and he is baptized. So this is where we see him. Now, what Simon is going to demonstrate for us is religion misplaced. He is a living example of religion versus conversion. Because Simon is all about religion. He's all about the experience. He's all about the power that he sees. He is not interested in a relationship. I believe there are many in the church today that are caught up in religion. And their focus is on religion and they seek religion. They do not seek a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion is not salvation. Religion is a vehicle that leads us to God, but it is not God. But I believe there are many in the church that are confused about this whole idea. So let's look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very interesting. That statement, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is different than the message we preach. We preach that the moment that you claim Jesus as the leader and forgiver of your life, you receive the Holy Spirit. God deposits his Holy Spirit into your life as a guarantee of your salvation. We read that throughout the rest of the New Testament. What's going on here? These people believed, they were baptized, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John showed up and laid hands on them. This is not the normal pattern that we practice and that we believe and that we teach. This experience is very significant to what God is doing in the church. First of all, Peter and John. Now, these are the rock stars of Christianity. (laughs) These are the big daddies. These are the CEOs, right, of, of what God is doing in the church. And so they go to Samaria because they hear that Samaritans are being saved, believing on the gospel and being baptized. This is the first time since the church began at Pentecost, that the gospel has gone to people who are not Jews. In fact, it's gone to the enemy of the Jews. And so Peter and John are going to go and check it out. (laughs) They just want to go and validate and see what's going on. And so once they get there, they recognize that these people who have believed and been baptized do not have the Holy Spirit. And so they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some look at this and say, well, that was a second baptism. Those who proclaim a second baptism of the Holy Spirit go to this verse and see that's exactly what happened. But it's very clear in verse 16 that they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. This wasn't a second baptism. This was the initial baptism. 
and they received the Holy Spirit. The other significance of this event is providential that Peter and John, the rock stars of Christianity, Jews, both of them, go to Samaria, the land of enemies of the Jews, and they impart the Holy Spirit on these new believers. So in this experience, we see the unity of the church. We see Samaritans and Jews all welcomed into the family of God, which highlights one of our value statements. We believe the gospel is for all people. Amen? There is no one excluded from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no one beyond the salvation of the gospel. That's why it is our commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that every nation, every type of people, every background, every lifestyle, every person might get a chance to know, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether they're on your street or they're in Africa, it is our job to make sure that everyone's heard the good news, just like Philip was doing the evangelism, evangelist when he went to Samaria. And so we see here that Jews and Samaritans are accepting one another, which shows us the heart of God. God desires that his church be unified. One faith, one baptism, one mind, one heart. That's who we are to be. And it's possible because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed that right at the end of his life on earth. Father, may they be one, talking about the church, believers, may they be one as you and I are one. May their relationship reflect the relationship the Father has to the Son. They are one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, they are one. May the church be that connected together, that solid together, because it's necessary that we have unity if we're going to do what God's called us to do, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, help one another grow in the ways of Christ. So here we see this demonstrated. It's also significant that Peter is here. Because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, okay, tell me who people are saying that I am. And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that foundational statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus raises his hands and he hugs Peter big. He says, that's awesome, Peter. I know that didn't come from you. That came from the Father. And upon that statement, I will build my church that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he says to Peter, and now you have the keys of the kingdom. Remember that? So the question, what are the keys to the kingdom, right? The keys of the kingdom mean, means that Peter can open the door of faith to anyone. He first opens the door of faith to the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews, and ultimately he will open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Why? Because from the beginning, the gospel has been for all people, not just one group, but for all. And that's demonstrated here in this experience. It's also a transitional period from the church as it moves from what they knew in Judaism in the Old Testament to now what they're experiencing because of Jesus in the New Testament is transitional. And so we see a different process. They believed, baptized, and then received the Holy Spirit. But if you go to Acts 10, this is where Peter first takes the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. His name was Cornelius. 
You remember the story, Peter's on the roof. It's lunchtime. A blanket comes down from heaven. He has this experience. There's all this unkosher food on the blanket. And God says to Peter, eat. He says, I can't eat. It's against my religion. God says, don't call unclean what I've already called clean. And that was a precursor to Peter going to the Cornelius' house, a house full of Gentiles to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was the launching point of the gospel to the Gentiles as Gentiles became part of the church. And so we see this, this, this beginning experience was significant. And through all of this, Simon the sorcerer is just watching. He's observing. He's already intrigued by Philip and what he's seen Philip do. And now he sees Peter and John come in and he's just checking things out at a distance. He's socially distancing from himself, but he's watching. And look at verse 18. When Simon saw the spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So here we have that Simon is trying to buy the Holy Spirit. He's trying to buy this experience. He tries to, to buy the ability to lay hands on people and see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit because he just watched Peter and John do it. He wanted what Peter and John had. He wasn't interested in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wanted to be able to wow people. He'd been doing it all these years, right? Now he saw a new type of magic that he thought, a new type of manifestation, and he wanted that. He didn't want to pay the price. He didn't want the cost of fellowship. He just wanted the ability to be able to do what Peter and John were doing. He wasn't even interested in receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, most likely when Peter and John laid hands on the people and they received the Holy Spirit, those who were believers, most likely, we don't know exactly the sign, but they probably started speaking in tongues. That was the manifestation that Simon saw. And so he wanted that. What Simon demonstrates for us is something that's vital that we understand. He demonstrates for us that not all who profess to follow Jesus are true believers. Not all who claim to be reborn, to be Christians, are true believers. Many of us at one point we walked down an aisle, we prayed a prayer, we signed a card, we got baptized, but we were never true believers. We had an experience. We had an emotional experience. We had an uplifting experience. We had a church experience, but we were never really transformed. We never really committed. In, in essence, we were like Simon. We, we wanted the, the good part of the church, and yeah, we want to go to heaven when we die, we don't want to go to hell, which is not a bad motivator, but we never understood what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. 
we want what the church has to offer, but as soon as they stop offering it, we're gone. We, we like how we feel. We like how the gospel makes us feel. We like how the Bible makes us feel. We like how thoughts of heaven make us feel, but we have never committed ourselves to follow Jesus Christ. Simon sought the power of God without any interest in a relationship with God. Because Peter says, look, you need to repent because you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Totally opposite of someone who possesses the Holy Spirit. Right? That's the opposite of someone who has the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. Those who are unwilling to take up their cross are not worthy of me. Whoever is not willing to take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You gotta understand, the cross is an instrument of torture. Jesus died on the cross. It's not a piece of jewelry, it's not wall art. It was a torture chamber. And what Jesus is saying by taking up our cross, I have to be willing to die in order to follow him. There is a cost to be paid. Jesus paid it for us, and I have to be willing to die to my desires, to my way of life, to the world I want to build. I have to die to my sin in order to follow the Savior. It's going to cost you but you've got to be willing. Otherwise, you're not a follower. If you don't understand that it is a relation, it is not religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ that he desires to have with you and offers to all. That's our pursuit. And sometimes following Jesus isn't comfortable. Sometimes following Jesus is difficult. Sometimes following Jesus is painful. But see, that's what Simon wanted to avoid. He even said, hey, pray the Lord that none of that bad stuff you just said happens to me. I'm not willing to commit myself to it, but hey, I just don't want anything bad to happen to me, right? I just want to be safe. There are people who come to Christianity because they think their life is going to be perfect once they do. Their life's going to be easy once they do. Man, are they sadly mistaken. And the minute difficulty comes, they're gone. Man, I, I just think a part of this whole pandemic is God sending a wake-up call to the church and asking us, what are you in this for? I think it translates to church, to being the church. As we talk about, we are the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we are true believers, true Christ followers, not just attracted to what the church has to offer, because when that attraction is gone, then those people begin to fade away. What we have together, when you become a member of First Baptist Burleson, you covenant together with the other members to be a part of this church. It's a covenant relationship, not a contractual relationship, not a social relationship. We are not a country club. We are not a social club. We are not a gathering like every other gathering. We are the people of God as we come together. So when you join our church, you go through our Discover First class, you sign a card to say, I am covenanting with my church, with other believers here in my local body of believers, to be the church. 
I'm not here just as long as I feel good. I'm not here just as long as you provide for me. I'm, just, I'm not here just as long as you don't take my seat away. I'm here through thick or thin, good or bad or ugly. If there's a problem in my church, I don't bail on my church. I help become a solution to it. If I have covenant, the idea of covenant, God started it. He covenants with us as his children. God will be faithful even when we're not. I will be faithful to my church even when some of my church members aren't faithful. If there's trouble in the church, division in the church, I want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. We have to guard ourselves because the enemy is always looking for an inside man or an inside woman to destroy the church. That's what Simon would have been. If Peter and John had to let Simon in, ultimately he would have destroyed the, the church in this village. We have to be alert and to be aware of what's going on. This is a commitment that we have. I think our church and probably most churches are really good about focusing on the steps to salvation. We're very good about presenting the gospel, telling people how you become a Christian, how you can be rescued from your sin. Here's what you do, right? Admit your sinner, ask God to save you, get baptized. We got all that stuff going on. Where we fall short a lot of times is talking about the evidence of our salvation. Insisting on the understanding of the evidence of our salvation. We, live out the, we leave out the biblical teaching on the evidence of our salvation. So let's say that you are driving in your car, you're headed west, uh, you're headed from Stephenville, headed to Brownwood, right, if you've ever been that way, and you see one of those giant orchards. There are tons of orchards out that direction. And you look out over these green trees and you see all these pecans hanging down off the tree. What might you assume the type of trees that you're seeing? What are they? Pecan trees, right? All right. Let's say you're driving down the hill country. You're driving through Fredericksburg, right? Kind of early summer. And you see all these orchards and you see these beautiful, juicy, plump Fredericksburg peaches hanging down off those trees. What would you assume those trees to be? Why? The fruit, right? The Bible says that if we truly are Jesus followers, you will notice by the fruit that we produce. Love, gentleness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. Kindness. Not say we don't get ticked off and we don't get explosive and we don't do things we regret and we don't get mad. Not say that, but, but there's just this constant fruit. I can look at you and I can pretty much tell that you're a Christ follower. I can listen to your conversation for a little while, and I can, I can pretty much tell that you're a Christ follower. Now, people can do good things and say good things and not follow Jesus. I get that. But Jesus' followers will. Right? And we learn to respond in the right way. When I have an offense against another brother or sister in Christ, I follow Matthew 18. I go and I have that critical, critical conversation, and we work things out that we might resolve so that we can be one. As Jesus prayed, and as this scripture reminds us, we are to be unified to the point that we're going to protect each other from letting anything come in and divide us. This is the church. I truly believe that God has allowed this, one of the reasons that God has allowed this pandemic is to separate the comfortable from the committed. I think there are a lot of people that were attracted to the church because it was comfortable, it was safe. 
It made them feel good because they went to church, but they've never really been the church. And so once it's not comfortable for them anymore, they're not coming back. Versus those who are committed, willing to do whatever it takes to be the church, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to disciple one another in the ways of Christ, that we're committed to this. We have, we have a covenant with God and a covenant with one another to do what God has called us to do. I think there are a lot of faithful and nominal believers who have been baptized, but they show no drastic, dramatic evidence that they contain the Spirit of God. I think that's been a major issue with the church in America. In my, my prayers that this has been a pruning time for the church. I think we've become comfortable. I think we've become complacent. I think we've become self-focused. I mean, honestly, if you look at the church in America, there's a lot of evidence that that's where we've landed. And I think God has taken this time to shake us up. Say, that's not the church I called you to be. I want a church that has my heart. <laughs> I'm looking for a go-to church in Burleson, Texas. That when I want to do something amazing, I want to do something God-sized, I know who to call on. Because I know they're going to respond. At whatever cost, whatever sacrifice, I know they're going to respond because they have my heart. That's the church I want to be. That's what it takes to be the church deployed. And I'm not, I'm not trying to cause you to doubt your salvation. <laughs> but I am causing you, to, I am challenging you to take a look inside to do a self-examination. Has there been any change in my life since I proclaimed to give my life to Jesus? Am I bearing any fruit of the Spirit in my life? Someone explained it to me this way, I thought it was pretty cool. It's like a peach tree versus a Christmas tree. A peach tree bears fruit because that's from the inside out. That's who it is. A Christmas tree just puts a bunch of ornaments on it to make it look like something. It's not. There are peach tree Christians and there are Christmas tree Christians. I mean, come on. We've done this long enough to know the look. We know the lingo. We can speak churchies, right? We can get the bigger Bibles. We can quote John 3.16 and make people think we know Scripture. We know how to play the game. The time for playing games is over. Don't play Simon Says anymore. Don't be someone that just is attracted to what the church can do for you. But be a person who wants to understand what it means to truly be the church. To truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this message is for all. Luke kind of wraps up this section by saying that Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. They preached in other villages. As they went back to Jerusalem, they stopped and preached in other Samaritan villages. John, 
who earlier prayed that God would rain down fire on the Samaritan villages and destroy them, is now telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our call. The gospel is for all people, and that includes you. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, regardless if you've played church, regardless if you walked down an aisle, signed a card, got baptized, but never were transformed, it's not too late. What Peter said to Simon is the challenge I have for all of us today. That today you would repent and confess. Repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord. Ask Jesus to be the leader and the forgiver of your life. He is just waiting. He's just waiting for that statement out of your mouth and out of your heart. If you truly believe, you may have doubts, you may have questions, but again, it's a relationship that God offers every one of us through Jesus Christ. And just like any relationship, it has to start somewhere. It could start there today. By simply saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on a cross for my sin, and I believe that three days later, God raised him from the dead. As it says in Romans, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. No doubt. No gray area. No, but what if? It's the simple truth of the gospel. But you've got to understand something. When you accept the truth of the gospel, that's a beginning point. From that point forward, we are learning to live the gospel. Gospel-directed, gospel-filled lives. If you had an experience like that, but there, you've never experienced any change, you did not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's no evidence of transformation, you have some questions you need to ask. You have some conversations you need to have. You should be concerned. Yeah, I had an experience. It was emotional at the time, but I'm not any different now than I was before that. Then you have not received the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't come in without changing. It's a slow process. It's a lengthy process, but there will be change. There will be transformation. The Bible's very clear. On that day, many will cry out, Lord, Lord. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we do all the churchy things in your name? You did a lot of good works. But you never committed your life to Jesus Christ. And God will say, I don't know you. Man, what a terrible day. Make sure that day for you is going to be an awesome day when God welcomes you into your eternal reward. Let's pray. God, obviously, sometimes we, we have things backwards. 
and we have things messed up. And the intent of the story today is not to cause us to to doubt our salvation, but really it, it's a cause to to make sure that we are born again. Maybe there's some people in here that've been fed a lie. It's not their fault at all. They were misled on what it means to be a true Christ follower. Maybe there's some here today or online that have been attracted to the church and attracted to the gospel and attracted to you because of what you offer, but there's been no commitment to take up their cross and follow Jesus. There's been no commitment to die to self, to be obedient to your word. They just like the good parts. (laughs) They like the easy parts. They're not willing to commit to the rest. Father, I pray in these moments, through your Holy Spirit, you would knock them down. Overwhelm them with your grace and your mercy and your love. Help them to realize they've been playing a game. They've been playing religion. They've never entered into a relationship. My prayer, God, is that everyone here and everyone watching online today and the rest of this week will have the assurance of their salvation. And that your church will be unified. We ask for greater things, God. We ask you to do greater things than we've seen. Greater things than we've seen this past six months. It's amazing to see how you are unifying your church in a world that is dark and lost and afraid and stressed out and anxious. And you've called your church to be the message of hope, the message of peace, the message of love, community, and salvation. God, I pray that we never become comfortable again. Jesus' name. Amen.